So, Mark. Yep. I want to describe a situation that I'm sure you've experienced. Of course. So, you are going up for a job in a magazine, but you discover that they want a columnist to write about a particular life experience that you don't actually have. So your job is going to be to write a column based on the premise that you have a job that you actually don't know how to do. What I want to know is, for you, what job would that be? Well, I would say my top choice was taken by the movie we will discuss today, because I would love to pretend to be a farm wife writing recipes and home care out in the middle of nowhere, living life just with no children, because I could not fake that. I mean, pretending to live in a more rural area than you do is a time-honored American tradition. That it is. But my thought was to go the other way and pretend to be a time-traveling 80s lady who worked in Wall Street and basically just write about modern issues from the perspective of Tess McGill from Working Girl. (laughs) All right. I love this idea. It is positively baffling. (laughs) I just really like the idea of, like, Tess McGill or one of the women from 9 to 5 trying to write their opinions on current day ideas, but using 80s lingo. You just like that slang. It is true. And you want to see that hair on CNN. That might be a big part of it is I think we should just bring back all of those hairstyles. Find a way to have a hairspray that doesn't rip a hole in the ozone layer, because I'm pretty sure the hairspray contributed to at least 5% of that. Okay, but it must be able to be done now because we've banned those CFCs and we still have hairspray. I wonder if our hairspray just isn't powerful enough because no one does that hairstyle anymore. I don't know. Anyway, what would you pretend to do? So I've been thinking about it too, and on the one hand, the, like, cities are great and we should not even pretend not to be in cities part of me is, like, maybe I would pretend to write a column as, like, a sewer technician. And it would be, like, all the secrets underneath the city that I find as a sewer technician. Every week is a different alligator. Yeah, or whatever. Or it's just, like, today I found a mountain of poop. Like, a mountain. Like, it was ten feet tall. I had to hack through it with a machete. Oh, God. Which is not a great way to hack through a pile of poop because it doesn't really cleave. Disgusting thing I've ever heard. (laughs) I had a feeling you would chime in on this. (laughs) The other idea that I had was beekeeper. I feel like beekeeper is hitting the same kind of zone as Dorothy Lane's column, where it's like very peaceful and kind of nice. And I watched Honeyland, and that lady was pretty great. So maybe that. I would probably base it entirely on Honeyland and just never explain why I was writing as though I lived in North Macedonia. There was so much drama on TikTok in the beekeeping community at one point that bled over into mainstream TikTok. Are you on beekeeping TikTok? No, but it like bled over into my feed because there's this pretty blonde woman who does beekeeping without any like safety equipment or anything it should just scoop bees with her bare hands but she's pretty so everyone didn't like her and <laughs> everyone thought she was encouraging like unsafe practices but she says in every video like i'm a trained professional i understand the bees and when they are in safe mode and when they're in attack mode so don't copy me but i think a lot of it is a lot of people just don't trust pretty blonde women So that was fun. 
And I think you would have to really get involved in that world if you were to pull it off appropriately, Will. Look, I've watched two movies about bees, so I feel like I've got it down pretty well. Is one of them bee movie? Because if that is part of your argument, you might as well pack it up because Alexander Yardley will catch you. Yeah, and of course, like, the beekeeping in bee movie is just a very strange Holocaust metaphor. Wow. <laughs> a thing that people do not bring up enough when discussing that movie. I mean, people don't really talk about the fact that Chicken Run is a Holocaust movie very often, and yet here we are. So yeah, I think I think I'm gonna go either beekeeping or like the sewer poop slasher. I did think you were gonna say you'd pretend to be a movie critic, and then my response would be, "We do that every week." But um, oh. that's the thing, like. <laughs> If I'm writing for a magazine pretending to be a movie critic, at some point, I just am a movie critic. I mean, by the time you publish your first article, you are a movie critic. Right, that's the thing. Fiona, what made-up life do you want to lead? Slash just write about to get paid. I realized that no, like, quality paper or anything would ever do this, but I would love to write as a private investigator... And write stories about the things that I've found out. Not with names, <laughs> but just like random gossip that I've uncovered. So you want to be a gossip columnist for not celebrities. I yes. like the idea that it's, so what that is, is like, it's an advice column, but people didn't ask for your input. Like, <laughs> sure. instead of people writing in letters to be like, hey, I'm having this situation. What should I do about it? You just write, I overheard someone in the park talking about this. Here's what they should do about it. Now that, I think, is actually kind of a fun idea for a column. I should start a blog about this. I mean, that's the thing. These Christmas episodes keep turning up good ideas. Remember last year when uh, we were talking about snowmans? We were talking about (laughs) snowmans, and she was trying to write that travel guide for, like, the local Minneapolis Weekly. Oh, yeah. I I fully repressed that movie. (laughs) I could not tell you one thing about it besides his name was Cole. Mark, does that mean you're not going to be watching it again this year? I have watched one too many terrible Christmas movies, <laughs> and unfortunately, I have more to watch for the podcast. <laughs> um, somebody liked my Snowman's review on Letterboxd last week. Uh, Just a, which means a stranger? They yeah, a stranger. It means they watched it. Went to log it on Letterboxd and just looked at other reviews of Snowman's there. Did you see what they reviewed it? No, I didn't look. You should find out. What was your idea? I already forgot. Now I'm just thinking about Snowman's. It, My idea? Oh, right. It was to be a gossip columnist for people that don't ask your opinion. Yep. Mm-hmm. I would enjoy that, honestly. I think lots of people would enjoy it. You just have to find a, like a paper that doesn't think it's beneath them. Right, you just write the overheard in DC, but give your opinion after. Exactly. And if it's in DC, your opinion will always be just, I need you to take it down about 10 notches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's my that's my plan. I'm into it. If only you like were the kind of person to have a blog that you regularly updated, but unfortunately you're not, so there's nothing that we can do about that. Yeah, if only. I was wondering when you would slice her for that. We're all on the edge of our seat. Here's the problem. I keep, like, going to eat 
chicken tenders. And then I like take all these notes and I take a picture and I'm like, okay, this, I'm going to write it. And then I start writing it and then I get busy. And then by the time I remember it, it's too late and I don't remember the tenders anymore. Don't you take notes when you eat them? Yeah. But I still feel like you need some recency you should to really capture the essence. Blog as you eat. But then I would be rude to whoever I'm eating with if I were like writing. I mean, if you're truly going to write your blog, you should be going alone so the company doesn't color your perception of the food. True. That's probably true. Because if you have a terrible first date, but the chicken tenders are good, maybe you'll forget. I assume you're going on many good first dates and terrible ones still. All around. Gallivanting about. I mean, I gotta say, I think that this movie really did hit it out of the park with the perfect scam. And I'm very excited to talk about it. So do you want to dive in? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. All right. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. Does Hollywood holiday romance actually make any sense? And are these holiday people actually dateable? Or even holiday likable? It doesn't matter if the holiday romance is the main holiday plot or a one-scene holiday flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are joined, of course, by Fiona, hashtag Fifi Fierce herself to talk about the 1945 holiday classic, Christmas in Connecticut. Hello! So, had either of you seen this movie before we watched it for this? No, and we should acknowledge the reason Fiona is on this, because Fiona has never covered a Christmas movie on this podcast that did not debut on television or Netflix. (laughs) And the reason is, when I was putting together our schedule for December, as I often do, I, like, put in some movies, and then I... We'll sometimes leave something blank for Mark or offer him a couple of choices. And in the Christmas section, I put in Candy Coated Christmas, Single All the Way. And then in the third slot, I put Christmas in Connecticut or Jingle All the Way or The Preacher's Wife. And Mark texted me and said, should we not have Fiona scheduled for that one? And I said, well, Fiona normally only does the TV ones. And Mark said, you're telling me Christmas in Connecticut, Jingle All the Way, and The Preacher's Wife are not made for TV Christmas movies. <laughs> I stand by that. All of these are unexpected classics. Okay. I feel like there has to be some sort of Connecticut-related made-for-TV Christmas movie, though. I mean, I searched on Letterboxd and could not find a Connecticut Christmas, which I assumed had to be a thing. I know there's, like, a Vermont Christmas. Oh. They did remake Christmas in Connecticut in the 90s, and I think it premiered on TV. Yeah, it was a TV movie. It was directed by Arnold Schwarzenegger. It starred Diane Cannon and Chris Christopherson. What a weird concept. Yeah, so in the TV remake, Diane Cannon plays a TV cook. Chris Christopherson is a forest ranger whose cabin caught fire and burned to the ground. And the, like, producer tells Diane Cannon she has to cook him a dinner live on the show. And I feel like this is... Remember when we talked about Always, Mark? I mean, probably not. Go on. (laughs) When we talked about Always, one of the things we were discussing was, like, it's a remake of a movie from World War II. And when it's just about, like, firefighters as opposed to World War II pilots, the stakes can't help being a little bit lower. And I feel like that's a similar thing where, like, 
when Jefferson Jones is like a guy who was on a raft for 14 days, like in the Navy during World War II, I feel like you buy the like, he's a major like heroic media figure more than like, he's a forest ranger and his cabin burned down. Right, like, especially when you add the story of all he wanted to do was eat, and he physically couldn't for weeks. Right. Oh, yeah. I have not watched the 92 TV Christmas in Connecticut, but by all accounts, it's not great. I feel that TV is also just easier to fake in some ways. I feel that people would be less upset to find out that she is not a real chef. There's an understanding that some level of artifice is taking place. Right. Like, going back to Candy Coated Christmas, I don't expect Reed Drummond to live in pioneer days. I mean, that's not really the premise of her show. I have no idea what the premise of her show is, and I refuse to learn. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, so none of us had seen Christmas in Connecticut before. No. Nope. I do think this is like the Ur text of the holiday romance movie. Like, all of the TV ones we've watched over the last four years, it feels like they all come back to this as their origin point. Especially the more openly comedic ones. Yeah. The gushy ones do come back to this, but this one really adds the whole element of mistaken identity and shenanigans and fake fights and all of that. It's very fitting that they shot this at the same, like, quote-unquote, Connecticut country house where they shot bringing up baby. I thought it looked like that. Yeah, I recognized it watching the movie and then I confirmed it. I felt like, obviously the romance is, you know, it's kind of a big thing in the movie, but I also just felt like there was so much else comedy-wise going on that it wasn't just about the romance. What was your favorite joke in the movie? Because I know what mine is. Uh, Come back to me. Oh, I can't remember one off the top of my head. Mine is every time there's a different baby, and they just have to convince people that it's the Uh, same baby. That was great. That's the best part of the movie. (laughs) And and then when Yardley, uh, City Green Street, is, like, reporting to the police that the baby's been stolen, and he has to keep describing the baby, and he keeps changing (laughs) his description wildly. It's great. The baby getting kidnapped plot is definitely one of my favorite parts. Oh, absolutely. I I also just enjoyed how many times the judge came back and they were like, oh, he had to leave again. Oh, oh, I'm going to get the judge. He'll be back. He'll be back again. It also feels like it's lampooning the kind of thing that is also riffed on in New York, New York, Mark. The like, we must be married. Like, we're going to the justice of the peace in the middle of the night, which is in all kinds of movies in the 40s. But instead of, like, rushing, like, we must be married immediately, Barbara Stanwyck is constantly like, oh, what if I sidle over the other way? And so he keeps having to come back. Well, they can't do it without a witness. She's oh, she so was good. Great. I love the, <laughs> the whole time when she's first showing the baby to Jefferson Jones and they realize that it's a girl. Um, wait. As we record this instant... Someone has not only liked, they have commented on my Snowman's Letterboxd <gasps> review. What did they say? So my review focused on the fact that he said he was created in, like, whatever year she first made her Snowman boyfriend. Because remember, she makes the Snowman boyfriend because she doesn't have an actual one. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, that means he's 18. And the movie never discusses the fact that she's, like, out flirting with an 18-year-old. <laughs> and somebody commented on my review to be like, 
doesn't that also imply there are 17 other Coles wandering around if each snowman manifests as a different snowman boyfriend? I don't know about that. I think she remakes him every year. But the snowman's discourse is alive and well. That's this is amazing. so bizarre. Anyway, yeah, uh, Barbara Stanwyck is kind of like riding high in her career at this point. She's coming off her third Oscar nomination for Double Indemnity, the movie the year before, which made her the highest paid actress in Hollywood. Wow. And there's something, again, terrible politics aside, she's pro-HUAC. She's anti-New Deal on the grounds that like, I worked hard to come up and succeed, so everyone else should do that without the government's help. But it's like, yes, Barbara Stanwyck, you did do that. You are also like, a beautiful actress. <laughs> like, if I looked like Barbara Stanwyck, I could also do that. <laughs> There's something kind of cool about being able to bounce back and forth between projects that are this different. I was going to ask, is she comic otherwise, or is she mostly drama? She did comedies fairly periodically. I guess I feel back then a lot more people did everything. Well, yeah, you're on a studio contract. So to a certain extent, you wind up where the studio tells you to go. True. Even Joan Crawford was in The Women. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, Betty Davis was originally cast in this movie, but left for some reason. Couldn't find out why. I think she would not have been as good. Betty Davis is too kind of inherently mean most of the time. It's That's hard, her appeal. It's hard to root for her, but that does make you want to root for her more, just in the wrong way. <laughs> Like, you'd root for her to keep her job, but not really root for her to get with Jefferson Jones. Yeah. I mean, I will say, I enjoyed a lot of this movie. Romance is pretty thin. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> it's not gonna be... Spoiler alert, it will not be high score for this one. They're not working that hard. They're just kind of like, what do you want? They're both hot. Like, they're gonna get together. It, I appreciate a movie that is just candid about that fact. Okay, so speaking of the other half of our romantic pair we have dennis morgan as jefferson jones dennis morgan was billed with three different names over the course of his career each studio billed him as a different name that's very were they variations of the same name or vastly different names his name at birth is earl stanley mourner at mgm they called him stanley mourner fine paramount called him richard stanley (laughs) okay and warner brothers which made christmas in connecticut Listed him as Dennis Morgan. Hmm. That is so weird. It's also weird to like continue doing it that deep into his career. Like I'm used to seeing a star whose like name changes at, like after a couple of minor roles. He had been like in major roles, just, and then they he had changed to do his some name. periodic rebrands. But like at the same time, no, because he'd go from one studio contract to the next. Okay. He's one of the more attractive Christmas leads we've covered. (laughs) Yeah, well, they had studio money for this one. Yeah, fair. There's one other bizarre thing to mention about this movie, which is that it was one of those Christmas movies released in July. Why? Wait, why? Christmas in Connecticut opened in New York City at the end of July 1945, and it opened nationally on August 11th, 1945. Why did they do that? Why? I couldn't tell you. There's a part of me that wonders if it was clear the war was wrapping up and they wanted to rush their wartime movie to the theaters before it was over. I don't see why you would need to do that, though. Yeah, I feel like people are smart enough to understand that movies are not made the day before and sometimes wars end. 
I mean, it worked. I, it was like a massive hit. It made over $3 million, which is a huge number for 1945. But that and, uh, is, yeah. The United States, it's VJ Day three days later. And you can celebrate by <laughs> pretending it's Christmas early. Well, it is yeah. an early Christmas gift, I guess. There was a bump in box office attendance around the time of VJ Day. The theory being like, people were happy and they wanted to go to the movies. So this movie did benefit. They should have done like a rerun at Christmas. It's possible they did. I wonder if bosses just gave people time off to to celebrate. That feels like something that would happen based off of my understanding of how big VJ Day was. Also, how many movies were in theaters at a time back then? Well, it's the thing of fewer, like probably two in a given theater at the most, but you have more theaters. You don't have the multiplex. And that's true. Right. Uh, I love a multiplex. What an invention. I was there this afternoon. I do love that movies have multiple complex, a word that like could be applied to so many things, and it's movies that got it. We got it. I assume that's where it comes from. Or like multiple, like cineplex is a word, right? But wouldn't that be like a cinema complex? Cineplex appears to be a chain of movie theaters in Canada. Oh. I will Google this later and report back. Or I won't. I can't wait to find out which it is. I know is. what I'd bet on. <laughs> He's not going to do I it. I know. Well, the other problem is I can't bring it up in the next episode we record because the next episode we record comes out first. <laughs> we're time traveling. <laughs> I thought you were going to say in the next episode, but we recorded the next episode like three Mark, weeks ago. Time traveling right. is a very common trope in some of these Christmas movies, and I think it would be only fitting if we too time traveled. Imagine if I answered a question... And then said you have to wait two weeks <laughs> to hear the question that I am answering. I would love it. So, should we talk about the romance of Christmas in Connecticut? Let's I would love to talk about this movie. Romance is a strong word. Well, I think the romance will give us an opportunity for a framework that Fiona can set up and we can interrupt to talk about whatever we want. That sounds great. I thought the point of this podcast was to only discuss the romance. I want to kick off right now and say I loved the opening credits. <laughs> Is that point zero? I really did. It starts off by saying Barbara Sandwick, Dennis Morgan, and Sydney Greenstreet. And then it's wish you a Merry Christmas <laughs> in Connecticut. It's like a, the opening credits are a Christmas card. And I thought it, it was really sweet. sweet. So every week we break down the romantic plot into five points to guide conversation, keep us on track, and to let us interrupt Fiona. So, Fiona, as our guest, and the only person we interrupt, we never interrupt each other and we always stay focused, why don't you take us to point one, or I'm assuming point zero? I I almost did a point zero. Again, as my Christmas gift to you, I did not. It's been a long time since you've point zeroed yeah, us. Yeah, it has been. I know, I've had a bunch of movies where there hasn't been a lot of romance recently, so it's hard to stretch it out. I guess your last one besides Candy Coated Christmas, was Father of the Bride? Um, no, I did a, a DreamWorks one. Oh, yeah. Ah, uh, yes. Which one? Uh, Monsters vs. Aliens. Monsters versus Aliens. The classic romantic film, <laughs> Monsters versus Aliens. So much there. It's about self-actualization through a rejection of romance. Right. Not a lot of lead up to a point zero, though. Hard to have a zero, yeah. So, my point number one is... Two engagements. And we can talk about how we got there, what I guess could have been a point zero. But so we, 
the first engagement we have is basically Jefferson Jones. He's at this hospital after being stranded on a raft for two weeks. Yeah, the movie starts with this, like, shot of a submarine shooting down a warship. I was like, is this movie starting with the Lusitania? (laughs) Is this taking place in the past? No, I was just like, how much battle stuff is going to be in this? I did not realize it. I do love the submarine. It's clearly shot, like, in a tank at the Warner Brothers lot, but it looks pretty cool. It does look cool. You can also see the wall and floor of the swimming pool behind it. Oh, I'll have to... Well... I didn't notice that. I did love that it goes from the opening credits that wish you a Merry Christmas straight into a submarine sinking a battleship. Well, Mark, apparently Die Hard is a Christmas movie, too. And then it's the two guys on a raft and the one guy's like dreaming about the other serving him a delicious meal. Okay, and it took me a second to realize that that was a dream. When I first saw that, I was like, oh, wow. Those two ended up really lucky with the life raft they took, and the other two really ran out of luck. And I was like, how'd they get a table on this stupid raft? And then I realized it was a dream. They were doing the full Bugs Bunny. I was waiting for the other guy to turn into the stake in his mind. Oh my gosh. Okay, but the theme for this movie, like the original song that he sings at one point, is frequently sung by Bugs Bunny. That doesn't surprise me. It's uh, The Wish That I Wish Tonight. Bugs does it all the time. The Wish That I Wish Tonight is kind of a dumb name, so I get why Bugs Bunny would sing it. (laughs) Anyway, Fiona, two engagements. Right, so he gets rescued, and he's in this kind of recovery hospital, and he keeps being given this mush food while the guy in the bed next to him is getting, like, steak and potatoes every night. Who's the guy that he was on the raft with? We say mush food. At one point, it's literally a bowl of milk with a raw egg yeah, cracked into it. Yeah, that looks disgusting. It. There's no way that's healthy. The nurse who gives it to him is like, oh, it's a lucky day for you. There's an egg in your milk. Yeah, you have a well, raw egg cracked was... into your bowl of milk. <laughs> you guys, That meal, not hunky-dunky. Not hunky-dunky at all. Guys, I feel like to get in the spirit, we should all try this meal. Okay, you try it first and let us know. Yeah, I'll let you know in our uh, Candy Coated Christmas episode. Oh, that'll be a great, like, memento situation. (laughs) Yes. So Jefferson Jones, he's really jealous of his friend's food. His friend is getting steak and potatoes. He's getting gross egg milk mush. Which you are going to try and let us know about two weeks ago. Yes, I will. Absolutely. And so he asks his friend, he's like, how come you're getting good food? What do I need to do in order to get good food? They're telling me I can't eat good food. And his friend, and and this is actually the point where Colin walked out of the room and gave up on this movie. When he really? Just, when he just kept saying, the Magoo, you gotta go with the Magoo. And Colin was like, what's the Magoo? And the Magoo apparently is not a blind old man who likes to act in A Christmas Carol. It's his strategy to flirt with the nurses and make them think he's in love with them so that they will then give him the good food. Yeah, and Jones is like, okay, but like, how far do I have to lead her on? And the other dude is like, go all the way, go all the way. Like, convince her you're gonna propose. That's how you get the good food. And that's what he does. He basically gets engaged to Mary Lee, the nurse. (laughs) And then he gets some steak or pork. I think he gets pork chops. And I think he throws up. He was not ready for that solid food. Yeah, he can't eat it. 
I do think it's important to point out that the reason that he's not been given solid food and the other person has is because Jefferson Jones sacrificed the last ration to the man he was sharing a raft with. He's a hero. Because he's a good guy. But it also means that the other guy's stomach didn't get as messed up so he can actually swallow whole food. How much is one ration? Was that really enough to mess him up that badly? I assume there was more than one. Okay. Maybe the other guy was secretly catching fish and not Uh, sharing them. And not sharing. Well, that's because he was mad that in the dream he was the servant. So then, meanwhile, Mary, like, picks up on the fact that Jones is, like, not that serious about it. And she asks her other nurse friend, like, what do I do to seal the deal? This is, like, the most... Mary's friend movie. says, oh, we've like, watched it a while. He doesn't really care about, like, having kids and, like, having a nice home. You got to show him, like, how good a home can be. You got to show him a proper home Christmas so he can see how marriage is great. <laughs> and then he'll want to take it all the way. So she writes to the publisher of, like, Good Housekeeping to say, like, hi, I'm Mary. Remember, I nursed your, like, granddaughter back to health. I need this, like, famous cooking writer, Elizabeth Lane, to show Jefferson Jones a nice, homey Christmas. The insane part of this plan is that Mary is not a part of it. Like, you would think she would want to show how nice a homey Christmas could be with her, not with some other lady. Yeah, that's where I thought the movie was going. Right, like, the idea would be, like, Elizabeth Lane would show Mary how to do all this, and they would impress Jones together. But no, Mary's just not there. She disappears and until like the last being discharged. Of the I mean, movie. it was World War II. I assume the hospitals were crowded everywhere. Mary was a dummy and also got married. So like, what is But this is when we cut to Elizabeth Lane writing her stories of being on her farm in Connecticut with her two children, maybe one, chi- one child and her husband. Okay, she only has one kid because Yardley, the publisher, like announces at one point in the movie, like, You know, it would be great for our circulation. You having a second kid. (laughs) I mean, it would be a good way to get a raise, which you could then use to pay for the kid. But Elizabeth Lane also refers to children as it. So I have a feeling (laughs) she wouldn't be on board. Probably not. I also just think in general, your boss should not tell you to impregnate your wife. Um, Boundaries were porous back then. Also, he wasn't (laughs) his boss at that point. I suppose that's true. But it's also worse if your wife's boss tells you to impregnate her. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So they cut to a shot of a steam radiator, and then Elizabeth Lane is typing in a tiny New York apartment, and her uncle shows up with food for her to write about in her next article. Is Felix her uncle? Yeah. Yes. That's why he helps her. I thought he was just like a friend of hers. No, they said something. I think it was like after the we haven't talked about it yet but after the engagement announcement her boss the editor is like congratulate your niece or something oh right yeah felix is great he's played by sc sakal awesome dude so then elizabeth finds out from her editor about what is happening and her editor is aware of the situation the lie but yardley who's obsessed with the truth even though he seems to be running like good housekeeping is not aware Right, so they're like, if Yardley finds out that you're a fraud, then we're all losing our jobs. You're losing your job for being a liar. I'm losing my job for covering for you. Because the fact is, she cannot cook, and she lives in an apartment in New York City. We also have no idea how this lie started. Which I appreciate. I mean, it's the idea that, like, 
cooking and writing about food are different skills, and she could do one of them. She did mention that I believe it was John's house, which is kind of what inspired her farmhouse. But I don't know if that's when the facade started. But anyway, so they're all talking about how they're going to lose their jobs. And John Sloan is in there as well. And he's like, well, I have a solution. You can marry me. It is clear he has proposed (laughs) many times. And she's saying like, I am running out of excuses not to marry you. Yeah, and enough times that her boss, the editor, is like, oh, get out of here, man. Like, you're no good for her. Really? You proposed again? This is absurd. A lot of, I feel like Elizabeth's boundaries are not respected in this movie. Well, that is for sure. (laughs) I did appreciate that she's got 38 rocking chairs in her apartment now because all of her readers read that she was looking for a rocking chair and they all sent her one. I think that's very funny. Yeah, I thought that was I wonder how many other times that's happened where, like, she has been sent stuff entirely inappropriate for her apartment and has to figure out what to do with it. Right. Well, I assume she sells it, and that's, like, another revenue stream she has to pay for her make coat. That's true, but she said all the the rocking chairs were in her basement. Can you imagine spending six months' salary on a coat? No, I cannot. Absolutely not. Her apartment looked pretty nice, though. I assume she's well-paid. She's clearly, like, the most popular person. I guess that's true. Yeah, she's based on a, like, specific famous columnist from Family Circle at the time. But yeah, so two engagements. Also, we should note that she agrees to marry John, and then it's, like, after that they realize, like, wait a minute, John has this farmhouse in Connecticut. And so the plan is they will go pretend that that's her place. She'll marry John so that they won't be liars. Like, she could be like, oh, this is my husband. But then actually, like, carry on the charade so that... In particular, her boss, the editor, can keep his job. Yeah. Right. I did think it was kind of weird to not just come up with pretending at the beginning. In for a penny, in for a pound on the lie. I don't know why she wasn't just like, let me just use your house. Well, I think at first they forgot he had that house. And so they were just like, well, we can't fake this. What's weird to me is that when they decide to fake it, she's still like, well, I guess we'll get married. Yeah. yeah. I would not want to go into a marriage with someone who is remotely hesitant no and he was like oh i'll work on you over the years it'll work out so weird and so creepy yes he's very strange he seemed like greasy and kind of smarmy and well yeah it's just the thing that like he's a big fan of cheap construction in the 1940s (laughs) right there's that time he's at that party raving about plywood and i'm like i don't know about you i feel like you're gonna be building like segregated suburbs before too long (laughs) i mean he's probably one of the inventors of the idea he does love prefab and he's really into i think it was the central heating right yeah like three layer pipes comes up a lot so yeah that was point one okay and a little bit of point two, so just the fact that they come up with this lie, they're going to use John's house, they're going to invite Jefferson Jones up, and uh, much to their delight, Yardley also invites himself for a couple days. So Yardley only shows up because his wife is demanding that he eat a diet Christmas dinner, which I thought was ridiculous. <laughs> you know what? You got to have a good Christmas dinner. It would have been normal for me. Like, I wouldn't have questioned it if he had just been kind of assumed to be coming along from the beginning but the fact that he goes and invites himself later just to get a good meal really threw me off i do also like get it to a certain degree of like 
it's clear that he reads Elizabeth's column and like knows it very well. And he's like, oh, this is my chance to like have the master cook for me. Yeah. It's also fun just to see Sidney Greenstreet doing comedy because I associate him with like Casablanca and the Maltese Falcon. It is. And here he just gets to be kind of goofy. Yeah, he's very goofy. So they're lying. <laughs> yes. This is a perfect movie for Fiona. I am not a liar. And there's a ding right there. <laughs> so Elizabeth and John, they show up to his farmhouse and they've got it all planned out. They've got a baby loaned from the neighbors. Well, it's his cook watches this baby. And so they're set on the baby and they bring the judge over and they're ready to get married and they're all set up. They're figuring out the music. They're figuring out where to stand. They've got Felix along to do all the cooking. Right, John had a copy of the Wedding March, a record like ready to play for it. Elizabeth's not a fan. She wants something a little more peppy. But just as it's about to happen, Jefferson Jones shows up early. You'd make a wonderful father, Mr. Jones. You're, uh, you're not married yourself by any chance, are you? No. Cards are stacked against me, I guess. Every time I meet a girl I like, it turns out she's already married. Oh, that's too bad. But you, you would get married if you found someone you liked who wasn't married. Like, hours early. Rude. He shows up with another rocking chair, so that's 39. And you can tell from the moment he walks in that he and Elizabeth are at least taken with each other's beauty. This is a very love at first sight movie. And I think that plays into a lot of my disbelief in the romance. (laughs) It, It makes so little pretense of anything else. Like... This is a movie that does not (laughs) pretend for a minute that these two won't wind up together. Oh, absolutely not. It is, unlike everyone in this movie, it is very honest about its intentions. (laughs) I really appreciated just how upfront this movie is about everything. The movie is not pretending to be a serious story by any means. It is like, come along for this Christmas farce with us. Yeah, which I loved. So as you say, Jones shows up and interrupts the wedding. And this whole thing then is just hijinks of the movie coming up with ways to delay the wedding then. And that I kind of have that go into point three. It was just like the rest of the visit with avoiding the wedding and then them bonding. One of the things I noticed is that like, like the premise of the movie is that Jefferson Jones has no sense of like, what a nice homey holiday can be. He's very domestic. Like he knows all about changing babies and like taking care of a house and stuff like that. Well, that's because Mary made that up. We don't know that he hasn't had a nice homey Christmas. I I guess I just took that for granted. That's true. (laughs) That's a good point. Like the movie is, I mean, they may not have thought about that, but based off the movie, he's clearly got a full family life. Elizabeth got very lucky about it, too, because she basically got Jefferson to bathe, clean, and, like, care for the baby. He knew exactly what the baby needed, and she was just like, oh, yes, perfect, you do it all. Yeah, worked out great. It did. And during all this, she and John are just pretending to be married until they can actually get it done, line up witnesses and the judge. This is where we get the conversation where Yardley starts going on to John about like, you know, our circulation went through the roof when your wife had a baby, but now her main competition is having a baby. So what we need is a second baby. And another great scene is actually the first night when everybody's 
gonna go up to bed and and actually they've got he's got the judge coming back the judge is gonna sneak in in the middle of the night to marry them but they're all going up to bed and nora threatens to quit this is nora the extremely irish cook yes she threatens to quit because she will not work for a man who is about to go spend the night with a woman that he is not married to and she's about to out them basically but then the judge shows up Right, and they explain, oh, the judge is coming, we're going to get married right now, and then we'll go to bed, and it'll be But then they get interrupted because a cow, like, knocks on the door. Well, because she went to go find a witness. She went to go find Nora, I believe, right? And she finds Yardley and Jefferson Jones in the kitchen. Right, and then the cow knocks on the kitchen door. (laughs) Yes. And then she and Jefferson go on a little walk together. They're just talking about their lives. Not putting a lot of effort into saving this cow. No. To the point where they lose the cow. I just like that by the time this all wraps up, like when she goes back in and stuff, and then Jones is left with Yardley. He has been there for less than a day and asks Yardley like, oh, do you think that Elizabeth is happy in her marriage? (laughs) Again, this movie makes so little effort to convince us that anyone is behaving normally. It's just immediately like, "Mm, do you think she'd divorce her husband for me? He did say that the reason he's not married is because every time he finds a woman he likes, they're already married. So maybe he's kind of like, one of these days, one of these married women is going to dump their husband. When he says that, she like practically climbs in his lap to be like, oh yeah, (laughs) any married women in particular? (laughs) God. Meanwhile, all this is going on and John and the judge are waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, the judge has to leave again. Is the judge drunk again at this point, or does he leave because he's not drunk enough? John gets really mad at that, where he's like, I expected to be married tonight, dang it. And I'm just like, John, like, we get it. You're horny. Like, you can wait a day. Wait, I would like to bring up the fact, the reason why they go out to the cow is because she wrote in an article that she cannot go to bed at night without going out to say goodnight to the cow. And so Jefferson is like, oh, don't we need to go say goodnight to the cow before you go Do you not kiss every one of your farm animals on the forehead before going to bed every night? Yep. So that, yeah, that was uh, one of their little close encounters. And then, as we mentioned, a new baby is brought over the next day. They did a really good job of making the babies look just completely unalike, even in black and white. Oh, yeah. What are the most different white babies we could find? Oh, the next day, I I thought this was hysterical. So the judge comes back again in the morning, and they're going to have a morning wedding. But then Mr. Yardley walks in on them, and they come up with the excuse that their anniversary is Christmas, so they renew their vows every year. And right as they're about to do this, Felix runs in and says that the baby ate his watch. <laughs> oh, because... <laughs> Felix does not want the marriage to happen. He hasn't liked John from the Correct. beginning. He's right. And it is a big watch. There's no way a baby yeah. would get this down its throat. Which is fully acknowledged in the movie. Everyone's like, no way did the baby eat that watch. And he's like, no, it did. <laughs> yeah. And they're going crazy. And they're like, we need to call the doctor. Somehow we need to get the watch out of the baby. In all of the mayhem, the judge goes home again. This judge, this <laughs> then... judge swings wildly between being the most patient dude who's willing to come over and over again, but having zero patience once he's there. <laughs> that I do love. Like, he's willing to show up whenever, but he's like, as soon as I'm here, you got five minutes of shenanigans before I am out again. 
Right. It's like, I'll do this, yep. but I will not wait. So yeah. So yet again, no wedding. At this point, John is really fed up with it all. And he threatens to go tell Yardley the truth about everything. Because he also but notices Yardley... Elizabeth and Jones getting close. Again, they are practically yeah, he's getting on top quite of jealous. But then Yardley offers him a possible job. Right. Yardley is like, it'd be great to have a husband-wife team. Like, I would launch a new magazine with the two of you as the flagship. You could write about, like, the newest developments in housing. And she could write her cooking family stuff. And this was, okay, then there was the one moment, well, one of the moments where I was kind of like, wow, they're really rude to women was when they forced her to flip a pancake in front of them all for entertainment. I will say yes, but at the same time, she is a world famous chef and she has not cooked them a single meal. I guess that's true. I guess that's true. She's good at continuing to come up with excuses. And I do love the actual drama that we get. When Yardley insists, like, I will watch you flip a pancake. <laughs> and because so everyone's sitting around, and the camera's just, like, slowly watching, like, is she gonna pull off the flip? Because we did have a training sequence. And she failed every <laughs> right. time. There's nothing funnier than a pancake sticking to a ceiling. It's just good. It's it good comedy. Good. But then when she has an audience, she's able to pull it off, and they all think she's a wonderful cook. Mike Berbiglia did these comedy nights earlier in the pandemic. Where it was, like, on Zoom, and it was all pizza-themed. You were supposed to have your own pizza to eat during it. And he and some of his comedian friends would talk about pizza and also, like, do jokes. And the one that I watched, there was a British comedian, a woman, who was making her own pizza, like, in a pizza oven in her backyard as she did it. And she rolled her dough and then held it up in the camera to, like, brag and make fun of everyone else who had just, like, bought their pizza. And as she held it up, it was incredible. She's holding the dough from the sides, and the middle of the pizza just flopped down, and you could see her horrified <laughs> face in the middle. Totally unrehearsed. That's great. It's one of the greatest things I've ever seen. So I think this is brings us to point four, right, Fiona? No. No, no, oh. no, no, no. Then they go to the dance. The dance. How could dance. I forget the dance? Speaking of marriage. Were we? No. <laughs> I guess I was just talking out loud. I've got marriage on my mind these days. So have I. Um, if I wasn't married, what would you say to me now? Well, first I'd call you Lishka, like Uncle Felix does. Say it. Lishka. Say it again. Lishka. And then what would you say? I... Gosh, I guess I couldn't say anything. I know. It's all so lovely. How could you forget John the spends the entire dance where... talking about plywood. To Yardley, he's so excited about this new job opportunity. Meanwhile, Elizabeth and Jones spend the entire time dancing, and eventually they just decide to leave. <laughs> yes, no, they decide to climb into a sleigh, and they're like, we won't take it anywhere. We'll just sit here in this sleigh and imagine we're going on a romantic journey. And again, this is where I'm like, nobody here is pretending that they are not, like, trying to get it on. <laughs> but on their walk to the sled, we watch them walking and Yardley following them inside from window to window to window as he realizes that his like model couple for his business might be falling apart. Like they're going to the sleigh to do hand stuff. Yes. Like it's so clear. <laughs> Is it in the sleigh that out of nowhere, Jones, nobody's saying anything. He just goes, speaking of marriage. I think she says that. I think it's in the sleigh. Because this is also when they get arrested. It's just absolutely insane chaos energy. Like, it's totally silent. And she goes, speaking of marriage, and starts talking to him about that. Well, 
Well, she asks what he would say to her if she were not married. And then they go on this, like, very long, like, fantasy about what they would say to each other if they were both single. This is like the pickup line from Hitch. Like, when he goes up to her in the club and is like, a guy like me might say something to a guy, to a woman like you. Oh, it is. <laughs> so what would a guy like that say? Well, he'd say, my name is Alex Hitchens and I'm a consultant. But she wouldn't be interested in that because she'd probably be just counting the seconds until he left. Thinking he was like every other guy. Which life experience has taught her is a virtual certainty. But then he'd ask her name and what she did for a living. And she might blow him off. Or she might say, I'm Sarah Milas. I run the gossip column at The Standard. But yeah, so they're in this like doing this creepy flirting, and then the horse just starts walking. Yes. And they make zero effort to stop the horse. So they just go along. And they get arrested. Until they're arrested for hijacking a sleigh. Honestly, if anything, the horse should be arrested for kidnapping. I think so. Yeah, so that, that, that I think, takes us <laughs> to the end of Speaking of kidnapping, oh, yeah. this is actually where Yardley goes home, finds one of the mothers of the babies leaving with the baby <laughs> that is her own child, and calls the police for kidnapping Elizabeth's baby. Because what's been going on the whole time is the Irish maid, like, watches neighbors' babies while the neighbors go to, like, work in factories or whatever. So what they've been doing is just, like, passing off the neighbors' babies as Elizabeth's, and... Yardley gets back in time to see a woman leaving with her own actual child. And it's great. He calls the police. Yeah. And he puts out like a $25,000 reward for the return of this baby. (laughs) Yeah. It's Elizabeth Lane's baby. It's a minor celebrity. It would affect his circulation. Uh, It would boost his circulation. Actually, I bet it would boost it. Everyone would be on the lookout for this baby. I was also wondering, he's talking about like a second child would boost circulation. And I was wondering, like, what's the point of diminishing returns? Like, what's the number child at which it's no longer interesting that she's having another one? In 1945? Yeah. By baby three, it's interesting, but it's not attention grabbing. And if someone else is pregnant around the same time as baby three, all of the thunder is stolen. Right. I feel like there's a valley. Like, at some point, like baby nine or something, it loops up to being interesting again. But you fall down to a point where it's just like Elizabeth Lane is a person who has children. Sure, yeah. So, (laughs) the baby's kidnapped. Yardley gets really mad at Elizabeth for being out all night while her baby is kidnapped. Which, fair. Fair. And this is when um, Elizabeth kind of admits the truth about everything. Don't you come near me, you you sea wolf. After the way you've deceived me. I deceived you. I warn you, you. if you take another step, I'll scream. And she gets fired. No one can believe that all of this has been fake. They bring in the mothers with their babies to show like, yep, these are not my children. There are two. And Yardley has to call the police to tell them that there was, in fact, no kidnapping. Um, And then this is where point four comes in. Because in all the chaos, after the fake kidnapping, Mary then shows up at the house for some reason. Yeah, why does Mary come? I would like to point out, point three is about like an hour Plus of this hour 40 movie. We're down to like 20 minutes left when Mary shows up. For no, you are correct. There is no reason Mary should arrive. She shows up. Right, because she didn't drop him off. She doesn't need to come pick him up. She's only there to resolve that dangling plot thread and say, oh no, I've decided to marry the friend. Well, first, the big problem at point four is that she shows up and she says, I'm John's fiance. 
or not John, uh, Jones's fiance. And obviously Elizabeth is very upset because she, a married woman, has been led on by this single man who was actually apparently engaged. And she goes to pack up to go back home. It's completely bizarre. And again, speaks to the fact that Mary's plan was dumb. Like, why go to all this trouble? Why burn, apparently, this IOU you have from Alexander Yardley if you're not going to go there and seal the deal? Well, it's because the other guy had the Magoo. (laughs) So she's just like, she shows up and she's just like, I'm married. But that's not the first thing she says. Well, not yet. No, the first thing she says is I'm engaged. And Elizabeth storms off. And then after, while Elizabeth is gone and Jones is gone, she admits to Felix that actually she is now married to Jefferson Jones's friend. It's like, the, why are you here, Mary? We do not get an answer. And why would you, why would you start with I'm Jefferson's fiance when you're another man's wife at this point? <laughs> exactly. I think that that engagement might be over. This is the kind of thing that only exists to fool the audience without making any sense for the character. Right. So in all of this, Felix then tells Jefferson Jones that Mary is married. Yardley kind of cancels John's contract. He says the only contract he cares about is Elizabeth's and he's going to double her salary. And that's because Felix lies and says that Mary's getting other offers or not Mary. Elizabeth is getting other job offers. And that is the last thing Yardley To be wants. fair, she definitely could get them. I mean, it sounds oh, like she sure. would be a great New York Times restaurant critic. Because she knows yeah. how to pick good recipes. Yeah. And then we get to point five, where Jones goes in to see Liz. And she's obviously very upset at him. I know something you don't know. I'm not engaged anymore. You're not? She married my shipmate. She did? I'm as free as a bird. Oh, that's what you think. He tries to kiss her. She thinks he's engaged to marry. She does tell him that she's not actually married. And then he finally tells her that he is no longer engaged. Although I did find it like he's not not engaged because he doesn't like Mary. He's not engaged because Mary's already married. But also he didn't like Mary in the first place. He was just using her to get food. And he can't do that with Elizabeth because she can't cook. There are Elizabeth doesn't there know are no that, good though. people in this movie. I, I think, love it. <laughs> it's striking talking about it. How this movie is just absolute nonsense and nobody makes any sense, which is what we complain about in the TV Christmas movies. And it speaks to how much you can get away with with really strong performers, like some good gags, a good director. And I think that, like, some of the TV Christmas movies, they're very earnest in what they're doing, whereas this knows it's all a That's joke. a good point. Like, the 12 Dates of Christmas wanted us to care. Right. This movie is very upfront and honest about the fact that it finds itself ridiculous. And we agree about that. Guys, I loved this movie. It's I good. did, too. I thought it was great. It really is just, like, all of the good parts of made-for-TV Christmas movies added with good actors. Who knew that's what they were missing all along? (laughs) And I think better jokes. Yes. So then they kiss, they get together. Yardley's like, you know she doesn't cook. And he's like, it's fine. And they're together. Aww. So there we go. So after watching this ridiculous movie, I think we may have spoiled our answer. Do you find the romance between Jefferson and Elizabeth believable? 
No. <laughs> it's patently ridiculous. Okay, but here's here's a, a, <laughs> oh, <no>. my question. <laughs> Do you not find it believable that these two attractive people would be attracted to one another? So this is a Mark argument. Half the time when we do this, Mark is just like, ah, they're both hot, so they would get together. Well, and do you hey, think that she, knowing she world, is single, though. she is single, she doesn't really want to marry John. Suddenly this attractive, like, they're calling him a hero. He walks in, like, of course she's going to be into him. And she's beautiful. And like, she's into him. So it makes sense for him to be into her. And they don't tell me they got married. If they told me they got married, I would not believe it for a second. But all we know is that they're into each other. I believe it. I think they get engaged at the end of this movie. The the strength of the belief in love at first sight that this movie needs you to take is just too far out there for me. Yes, they they get engaged. She agrees to marry him at the end of this movie. And on top of the love at first sight thing, there's just the, like, there is never any pretense that they are not flirting with each other, which I have a hard time buying from him. Like, sure, apparently he has a thing for married women, but, <laughs> like, you gotta be at least a little bit reserved about it. And also there's the Mary of it all. We're like, what the heck is going on with Mary? But that's a part of our romance. This is all ridiculous. Well, and I and I absolutely would ding some points for the fact that like it's all based off of a lie too. Yeah, there's no conversation these two have where they're open and honest and they end the movie engaged. So Fiona, every week we rate this on a 10 point scale where zero means we believe none of it and 10 means we believe all of it. Where would you put Christmas in Connecticut? Now, Fiona, I want you to give us your real (laughs) score and don't knock points off of it just to agree with us. Okay, here's what I'm going to tell you. Earlier today, I had a much higher number than what I'm going to say now, but I think my current number is still higher than what you guys are going to say. All right. I think you you fairly talked me down. I'm going to give it a five. That is a higher number than I'm going to say. Yeah. That is true. I believe they're into each other. Will? I think I'm going to give this movie a two. I was going to go with the three. That's fine. I think I really got hung up on not understanding Mary. <laughs> yeah, the Mary of it all is a huge wrench in the works. Now, Fiona, do you think that Elizabeth or Jefferson is dateable? Yes. I mean, Jefferson, you are right up his alley because you are a married woman. That's true. I, I think they both are. I think they're flawed people, but I don't think that either of them... All right, never mind. I don't like how Jefferson is only into married women, but I don't think that Elizabeth really has done anything so horrible to disqualify her. No, she seems fun. I enjoy that she has faked her way to the top. Oh, yeah. But I think that Jefferson, they're both movies just so unbelievable for me. It's hard (laughs) to say completely like they're dateable because they're not real humans. Elizabeth is an absolute yes for me. I'm suspicious of Jefferson. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at. If you had to pick one person in this movie to date, though, who would you pick? Felix. Felix. Everything's hunky-dunky. <laughs> there's, like, there's no other option. He's a great cook. He's He owns a restaurant. He'll look He's out for nice. you. He cares. He's willing to lie to America to help his <laughs> niece succeed. And he says hunky-dunky. Mark, the entire day that I watched this movie, I had Hunky Dunky stuck in my head to the tune of the Portly Washboy jingle. <laughs> hunky Dunky, don't, don't eat, eat it like, like the cartoon, man. 
Oh my god. I can't believe I still have that locked away in the noggin. <laughs> now, Fiona, do you think Elizabeth and Jefferson will stay together? Um, it's 1945. I kind of think they will. This begs the question, though. Once they're married, Elizabeth is a married woman. So does that mean he will continue to be into her? I would think Even yes. though she is yeah. married to him? Yeah. Mark, they've already done a lot of role playing, okay? <laughs> I think... Can the... you delete that? <laughs> Do not delete that. <laughs> I think they probably would. Yeah, I think they unfortunately. would. Unfortunately. Yeah, I think they will. That or she'll go hang out on a divorce ranch in Reno, Nevada in like two weeks. <laughs> Those are the two options. Well, honestly, good options. So many of the movies we have covered on this show have been adapted into stage musicals. Fiona, should there be a Christmas in Connecticut musical? I don't think there needs to be one, but I think it could be entertaining. It's easy to imagine, like, some regional theater putting it on every year. Sure, yeah. I think it could be very fun to do some patter songs in here. Just, like, squeeze as many words per minute as you can into comedic songs about living in Connecticut. Well, I'm glad you think so, Mark, because it is currently in development. (laughs) What? Of course it is. This version or the later one? This one. Okay. I hope there's a song where she's like sitting at her typewriter, singing out her article as fast as possible. Yeah, it's in development from the guy who did Carrie the Musical. I did not know there was a Carrie the Musical. Uh, Yes, there is. If we ever do (laughs) Carrie, I know the answer to that question. We should do Carrie. We should do Carrie. I once tried to trick Fiona into watching Carrie with me by telling her it was about a girl who goes to a school dance. Did you really? Is accurate. Yeah, I did. I don't remember that. It was the first year I hosted my, like, Halloween movie nights, and you complained that you were too scared to watch any of the movies, and I said, no, Carrie's just about a girl who goes to a dance. Oh, yeah, nice try. I think you could handle Carrie. Maybe. All right. I think that's about it for Christmas in Connecticut. I am uh, glad we have watched it, seen the original, now that we've talked our way through a couple of ridiculous TV ones. Next week, we will be talking about a movie with Cher. And you know what it doesn't have, Mark? Mermaids. And it has zero mermaids. mermaids. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at LoveTheLovePod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at LoveTheLovePod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts to help other people find the show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Christmas in Connecticut? I forgot to think of something. It wouldn't be a recording if I remembered to prepare for this question. <laughs> um, I'm going to say, and this is also to back up my rating, is that, no, it doesn't really back up my rating. Never mind. <laughs> Nothing in this movie is actually good advice. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking about now, too. Guys, I got one word for you. <laughs> what? Magoo. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's the only dating advice in this movie. It's the only advice offered. It really is. All right. Well, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. 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 I'm wishing that I'm 
I'm wishing that I might have the wish that I wish tonight. I've told my lucky star the wish that I made, and every time so far she's come to my aid. It may not be today, it may not be tonight, but I'm sure it will be all right. And maybe by tomorrow, if I wish with all my might, I might have the wish I wish.